Father, I realize as I pray and as we have sung this song together, it calls us to hold on to you and to keep our eyes gazed and fixed on you no matter what's going on around us. So God, I pray for some right now who are experiencing kind of those waves and they want to look at the waves. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. You are our Lord and our strength. And Father, for some right now, you have been calling them, even in this song, to step out beyond the border of their own faith and, to, and their own comfort and to trust you. Whatever it is in your heart right now, God is saying to trust me with it. Step beyond and keep walking with me. I'm calling you deeper. God, I believe you're doing this with this church. You're doing it through our students here who have served us. And you're doing it with us as a body. We want to walk on that water by faith into places that are deeper where you can receive glory and be honored. So God, we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. You know, before you get seated, thank you guys for worshiping me. I have to say, I, I just, you know, they planned this service. Those are some of their favorite songs. That last song is one of their favorites, I was told. And you can see where it is, the sense of God. You, anybody ever been in high school or middle school? <laughs> and you've experienced what it's like to be in, and, and then you have this song. And, and, you know, some people say, well, why do you sing the same verse over and over again? Anybody meditated before? See, part of worship in our culture today is learning how to meditate on the Word of God. It's learning how to meditate on a truth. So that when they sing a song, and when we sing a song, I am, I am a child of God. Can you imagine that going through their head day in and day out in the morning and night? How many were in an in a experience with, in, in your life where you had a, a vibrant youth group like that? How many wished you did? You are providing that through your prayers, through your commitment to this body, through your gifts. You are giving these kind of opportunities where Joe will come up and and talk about praying in our sanctuary that God might touch another seventh. This is a seventh grader. puts us to shame. Let's pray. Father, I just pray for these kids, these youth of ours. What a gift. God, for some of us right now, it's not about us at all. It's about giving away our faith and handing the baton of faith to this next generation and clearing a path for them to move up. God, may we not stand in the way, but cheer them on and love them and support them. May they not be slaves to fear. May this be a generation that's not given to being afraid of standing up for you. May this be a generation that that is so filled with the identity that they are children of God that they will live out what we're talking about, these, these attitudes of disruptiveness. God, may they disrupt America, this culture. We pray for it. 
We ask that you would be moving in our midst as a body, in our families, in our personal lives. And we praise in Christ's name. Amen. Wow, that's a, that's a cool experience to be able to do that as a congregation. And I would love for us to have them plan more services. <laughs> Let them tell God stories. There's a, uh, there's a group that was formed called the United Nations, right? After the world was at war for the second time, we kind of, as a world, said, we can't. We've we got to stop fighting. We've got to stop killing each other. And so they formed this agency as a world peace organization. And you know it has a model. The motto is to have succeeding generations be free from the scourge of war. It's a great ideal. Here's a little known fact. Since the formation of the United Nations, there has not been one single day of peace in the world. Not a day. The world is filled with never-ending upheavals. And try as hard as we humanly can, we can hardly keep peace, let alone what Jesus says, make peace. Years ago, it was almost a generation or more ago, in the New York Times, it reported there's a researcher who did some studies, so I don't know what the current numbers are, but even at that time, there was 14,553 recorded wars since about that turn around 36 BC, AD, around in that area. I read once, and I can't verify the source, but I've seen it in a couple places and actually came across it again as I was studying this. A researcher found that in the 4,000 years of written history, the world has been at peace 7% of the time. That's merely 286 years. And with over 8,000, these are just 8,000 known and recorded treaties that have been signed and broken. I have no idea the count of treaties that have been made, that we have no idea those that have been broken. One historian noted that the United States has at least had a few years of peace in our short historical record. He cited the years between 1815 and 1846, and then again 1865 and 1898. Those years we had been at peace, but what he didn't record was all the Indian wars during those years. Kind of just left those out. And on top of that, if you take all the people killed in the war since our country's inception, more people have been killed with private guns than all the wars combined. I'm not making some kind of statement about guns. I'm just making the statement that this world has a lack of peace and is filled with conflict. From the streets of Ferguson to the safe houses in Minneapolis to the security forces in Iran and Iraq and the whole movement of ISIS and the threat around that, there is just no peace. And at every level, peace is lacking, whether it's world, whether it's national, whether it's what's in the home, or whether it's personal peace. There's emotional and mental and spiritual unrest. And this lack of peace is also a relational peace. We see it all the time, where we work, where we live, whether in a marriage or a family or schools or businesses or even our churches. To some degree or another... The world reflects our hearts. Jesus continues with this really disruptive message. He's been talking about blessed are the the poor, and, and, and then he talks about the mourning and the meek and those inherit the earth and the hungry for righteousness and the merciful and the pure in heart. And then in some interesting way, he 
begins to talk about blessed are the peacemakers. And again, these all follow logically because good peacemakers have to have all those characteristics in their heart before they can move that. In fact, it takes a person with a pure heart without hidden agendas and without different motives or ambitions to actually move into a place to help create and make peace. And so it's interesting that Jesus, I think in a logical sense, moves through each of these Beatitudes saying if this is your character, this is the reality, then you'll be this kind of person. So that he basically is telling us that blessed, the person is blessed who begins to choose to be a maker of peace. His followers, he says, will resemble his Father in heaven. In fact, he says they'll be sons of God. So blessing comes to the person who chooses, and we're going to talk about making peace, what that really is. And if you begin to become that kind of person, guess what? As you have those characteristics of those other blessings in your life, you'll be a disruptive force in this world. You think disruptive? Yeah, because peace is not something this world experiences. You will disrupt all the conflict, and you will be called a son of God or sons of God, which in the Aramaic and Hebrew language, they didn't have a lot of adjectives, so they would use words like son of God to say one who is like God. You'll be God-like. You'll be the kind of person that when you go out in the world and someone notes what's going on, that you are a person who, who is actually making peace. They're going to go, wow, that's a son, that's a daughter. It looks like God would do because God is all about reconciliation. He created this world. You think about it, there was peace before and then there was disruption by sin and there's been conflict and conflict between God and man. And it continues on until at one point he says he'll wrap up history and when he wraps up history there will once again be a peace. But in that time, from that conflict till it ends, he did something that he wants us all to live in and that is he brought reconciliation. He says we are to be people who go around to be like sons and daughters who will be seen like Jesus as one who makes peace. Now that might sound like a really good job in some ways, but when we get into this, you'll see that it's a really difficult thing. In fact, this message was one of the more difficult ones that I've had to put together in a while. I'm not really wrestled with it and kind of working it through. And I actually send it out to different people, and, and you may not realize this, but you, this, these, some of these messages sometimes are done as a team. So I sent it out to some of the worship team and others, and I got something at one in the morning or so from one of the staff members and, and, and really encouraged me to kind of look at it in, in the sense of personal and tell some God stories, whatever. And, and, and I woke up, and then I so that came at one. I woke up and received it about 3.30 in the morning. And then God started to help put some of these things together. And I thought, I just would like to share this with you in a way that's a little bit, in some ways, personal, because for me, it's been a process of maturity and growth to really understand what it means to be one who is a peacemaker. Because Jesus disrupted my own understanding of it through his word. So... Through seasons of my life, Jesus has taught me different levels of this truth and what it means. And the first thing that I found, the very first most important thing that I realized in my life is you, if you want to be a peacemaker, if you really want to be one who makes peace, you have to come to a place where you have gotten personal peace in your life before God. Because the disruption that's going in your own heart before God will actually play itself out in disruption with others. And I, I know that when I was in a, at a young age, I came to a place where I, I, I asked Jesus in my heart, but it wasn't until much later that I began to understand the, the, the peace that came in my relationship with God the Father. See, you, you can't be a peacemaker if you don't personally have peace. 
And if you don't have peace within, it's really tough to make peace without. Peace is a gift from God. It's something that that God did through his son, Jesus Christ. He took all our guilt and our sin and our shame, and he allowed us to come into his presence so that now he can begin to create his, his holy presence in our life, that we can become people who are of peace because we have a faith in a God who loves us. We're not at war with him. Because you can't manufacture that kind of peace. You can't work it up in some way. You're not going to get that peace by getting the right job or the next promotion or getting the perfect partner or trying to manage it out here until you have it in here. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is when you receive Christ as your Savior, he puts his Holy Spirit in your heart and he says there's the opportunity if you want to begin to walk and follow him for that peace to grow. Because peace is always a byproduct of a right relationship with someone, specifically with God. I was reading in Christianity Today, and there's this article that said, and they've been doing in, in, in CT, is what they call the magazine, <clears throat> these uh, testimonies. And it was titled, An Original Jesus Freak, LSD, Revolution, and Buddhism Didn't Keep Christ From Me which is kind of an interesting look at it. It wasn't so much that he was searching and found Christ as much as that he says in some ways Christ found him. James Stuart Bell recounts his story. He says, At age seven, as an altar boy, I first experienced the love of Christ. It was during an Easter vigil. Before the sanctuary light, I felt bathed in his warmth and love. It reminded me of the seventh grader coming up here and experiencing this presence of God. It's a really, what an incredible mark on his life. And some of you have experienced that at some point in your life. Some of you may have never experienced that. And here's an opportunity today to say, Jesus, come into my life. I, make, I want to be at peace with my Father in heaven. I want to admit my, my own sense of war and sin before him. And I want to just trust you with my whole life. But some of you have been still kind of like, yeah. You've experienced it, but you aren't living in it today. And he goes on and he makes this statement. He goes... But by the time I reached high school, I had mostly forgotten that experience. And in college, I kind of went in some of his classes and got a little bit into the heady stuff. He says, in fact, I also was into drugs, into mind expansion. I began to explore Eastern religions, explored shamanism, the practice of reaching altered states of consciousness with the aid of mushrooms, and went to rock concerts and peace marches. And for a whole long time, even after high school and even through college, he says, I went for whatever promise that I was looking for, and I was looking for the door to open to love and meaning and purpose. And finally, he says, after a dose of LSD had worn off, I crashed into a deep emptiness and felt an incredible loneliness, had no peace. And then he said, I remembered what this Jesus freak friend had told me. God had actually brought this guy into his life and he, he shared these things that, that, that uh, um, James Stuart Bell just said, I just had no time for. But in that moment, he recalled what a friend had said and the friend had told him about how at one point he opened his heart to God and the Holy Spirit entered him and he assured him of forgiveness of his sins before Christ and it brought him a new life. And he remembered what his friend had said and in that place he said, I asked Jesus to lift the weight of my sinful self-absorbed life and enter my heart. And then he writes, it was as if a fountain of living water rose up deep inside, pushing out all the junk that had built up within it. 
And the same glow of warmth and peace that I'd experienced as an altar boy was back. Jesus had recaptured me. Jesus, he says, brought peace to my restless soul. And from that day, he began to follow the Lord Jesus. You may be in a kind of place right now where you're saying, I remember, I remember, and Jesus is saying right now. And you may be that you aren't that far that you've done all these things out here, but you just have lived your own self-absorbed life. For me, I said this is a little more of a personal testimony in some ways. It wasn't until I was 17, I was in my senior year in high school, and it was fun to speak to the, um, youth, the student ministry youth group when they were here. I shared this with them. It was, I was in senior year in high school, and I had come to this place where I had really been living a lot for myself, and I, I was filled with all kinds of internal conflict. I mean, it was the spring of my senior year. And after an evening again of living totally for myself, I came home and I just felt completely alone and I felt, felt, I just was full of shame and guilt. And I knew that I was doing things that were outside my parents and my own value system. And I remember just feeling full of this inner conflict and I cried out to God. I, I, I grabbed the Bible, laid down on my bed and I just decided to open it up. That's a scary thing to do sometimes. You don't know what you're going to turn to. But that's what I did. And it was like this experience here. It was like God met me in it. I opened it up to Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. And I can tell you, as I read it, I felt like it was coming out of my very heart. I felt like I almost could have penned these words. And the words were, I don't understand myself at all, for I really want to do what is right, but I can't do what I want to do. But I do what I hate. And I know perfectly well that what I am doing is wrong and my bad conscience proves that I agree with these laws that I'm breaking. But I can't help myself because I'm no longer doing it. It's sin inside me that is stronger than I am and makes me do these evil things. And I know I'm rotten through and through so far far as my old sinful nature is concerned. No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I can't. I want to, but can't. When I want to do good, I don't. When I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. Now, if I'm doing what I don't want to do, it is plain. When the trouble is, sin has its evil grasp on me. And I remember at that moment that I just said, Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you with everything I have. I didn't have like these streams of living water bursting up inside of me. I just had this gentle peace that Jesus was with me. And I began to say, Jesus, I'm going to take your leadership. And it was just a process over a few years as I began to grow in that relationship. And, and so one of the very first things I just share with you that is really important, if you're going to be a peacemaker, you have to have peace within. It, it, it requires for you to stop running your life and, 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 and dealing with, it, it really says, the sin that's in me, Jesus, I need you, because what you did, I need you to begin to operate in my life. I'm going to follow you with everything. Some of you have maybe never done that. And I know one of the other things that was really critical for me in my walk at that time was that I made a commitment as I, because when you open the Bible and, and God speaks to you like that, I made a commitment and said, I'm going to start reading God's word on a regular basis. Because if you don't read God's word, you won't be able to hear God's voice speak through you through that word. And there is a sense where he just grounds you with his truth and his promises. And why wouldn't you want to do that? I thought to myself, man, if Jesus, who is the perfect sinless son of God, would, as was custom, 
go off by himself to listen and spend time with his father and to meditate and dwell on his word and his father's love. Who am I? Who are you? To think that you can live in peace without God's word on a substantial, regular basis in your life. And not only that, as was custom, one of the things he also did, he's made a commitment to be accountable and to worship and to be together in the body of Christ. It says, as was his custom, he would go to the synagogue. He would go to the place where people of God worshipped. So one of the other commitments I made in my life is, God, I'm going to be in accountable relationships. I'm going to be in a place where I can worship and hear the word of God. So that's when it started for me, and that's what I challenge you to think about. But then as you move into that, you begin to realize, and one of the things I began to understand, and it's still a fight to this day, it doesn't just go away. But if you want to be a peacemaker, you need to understand the tendency, what I call to be a peace lover. Now you go, what's wrong with loving peace? Well, it's wrong when you love peace more than you love Jesus and what he wants you to do. That's what I call being like a peace idealizer. Because you have to begin by loving Jesus more than peace. Following Jesus does not mean the absence of conflict. I think sometimes we think when you follow Jesus, sometimes when people come to faith in Christ, and when I came to faith in Christ and really began to follow him, in many ways the conflict got greater in my life. I had some obstacles and things that came in my life because I chose to follow him. I actually had some relationships with some other people that became a bit more difficult. It doesn't mean that when you choose to be a peacemaker that all of a sudden there's going to be an absence of, of conflict. He actually says, be a lover of Jesus in his way, and the byproduct of that will be peace. In fact, Jesus himself said, I have told you these things in John 16, so that in me you may have peace. He's talking to his followers right now, and he says, in this world you will have trouble. You just got to understand, you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 1 Peter 4.12, Peter encourages those who have chosen to follow Jesus. They're really kind of going, what's going on here? We thought that if we kind of followed Jesus, we would have peace, and now we don't have peace. And he says, hey, listen, guys. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. See, because when you begin to walk with God, he begins to test your faith and your trust in him. Because your peace isn't coming from this out here. It's coming from a walk with God. And when he calls you to walk with him, you will have trials that will come in your life. Whether they are ones that come as a result of your faith or they're just ordinary trials. And we're tempted, I think, sometimes to think that when we follow Jesus, when, when we are called to be peacemakers, one of the things you need to really guard against is this tendency to be a lover of peace in the sense that you want peace over against the growth and development of your faith, which brings peace through Jesus. And, and I'll share with you, that's a lesson I'm learning all the time. And Jesus, as you read his word, never implies this. In fact, if you look at these Beatitudes, just look at the next two verses. In the very next Beatitude, he reveals that this isn't at all what Jesus could be thinking because he goes on to say, blessed are those who are persecuted, those who are insulted, those who are falsely accused. Jesus himself lived in the middle of conflict all the time. According to the Bible, peace, now catch this, is not the absence of conflict. It's not the absence of something. Peace is the presence of something. Okay, it's not the absence. 
There's a word in the Old Testament that they would use quite often. It was the word shalom. It meant that it was the word wholeness or peace. So like when you were saying goodbye to someone, they were much more godly than we are. We don't say, hey, see you later, you know, that kind of thing. They, were, they would always kind of give a blessing. They would say shalom, which meant be at peace or, or experience peace or, or know the peace of God, the sense of wholeness, the sense of, of just things being really right before you and God. And, and, and this word peace wasn't this idea that they were saying, may everything go well in your life. It was more the idea, not the absence of something, but that you would enjoy the full satisfaction, the deep-seated calm, the settling sense of tranquility that God alone could give with his presence as you walk through life. And one of the harder things I have to do as a pastor is I get calls from people or I find out that someone has an illness or there's something that's happened in their family. And, and you just can't go in and go, oh, you, you know, your part of you wants to just take it away, but it doesn't, that's not what this is promising. It's, it's his presence. So when you come with your presence, you're basically coming in with the presence and you're praying in this sense that they will have not the absence of this, although you, you can, obviously we pray for that in those many situations, but what we pray even more so is for the presence of God to abide in that situation that he may be shown through it right and so if you want to be a peacemaker you need to understand this tendency to kind of put peace as the goal rather than jesus and the faith that he wants to develop in this it's not the absence of something but the presence of something far greater and better and jesus was really quite clear about this even before he left his disciples and he was before dying on the cross and, and, and they were going to move into the dark night of their soul. They were going to fear deeply. They were going to have their dreams shattered. They were going to face despair like they never could before. Before they go, Jesus says to them, listen to these words, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away. And I'm what? Coming back to you. There's the promise of his presence. It's not only him himself in the sense of his resurrection, but the giving of his Holy Spirit, which was the presence of God in our hearts. So if you look at that, he goes on and he says, if you want to be a peacemaker, you need to deal then with another tendency, something that I began to learn in my life as I kind of went through it. Okay, this is about my faith and the growth and development of my faith. If I'm going to be a peacemaker, I first have to be at peace with God. And as I'm at peace with God, it begins to help me bring peace in other relationships. I recognize it's not about peace, that everything's tranquil around me. It's not about outer peace. It's about the growth and development of inner peace. It's about my relationship growing with God. And then I began to realize a tendency that I had, a tendency that some of you may have. It's what I call the self-protecting, and it's really a selfish tendency to be a peacekeeper. Peace is not only the absence of conflict. It's not about that. It's also not the avoidance of conflict. Again and again, Jesus would speak things that were true that it would have been a far better if he just didn't say them. There were things he would say that would set people off. And, and you would be thinking to yourself, in order to make peace, you'd rather not say that because if you really want to keep peace and maintain peace and avoid conflict, just don't say it. So at one point, Jesus, as a bunch of followers are beginning to follow him, he's got a whole group of people. He stands up and says, I think to his disciples' chagrin, he says to them, in John six fifty three, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You're going, whoa, wait a second. 
They're thinking, cannibalistic, what's going on here? This is a hard... He's saying that in him and him alone, it's, 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 as you feed on who he is and, and his presence begins to fill your life, as, as you begin to experience the way he wills life, the way that he acts in life, the way that he thinks about life, everything about his life, it'd be like eating to get nourishment. His life brings... If, and, and they're going, wait a second... And if you read what John says just a few moments later, he says, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And at that point, a bunch of them said, we're going. Now, you really think about it. If Jesus really wanted a whole group of people to follow him, he was just trying to grow this big majority so he could, he could bring about world peace, he would, have, you know, he would have not done it that way. He would have actually not said things that created that kind of tension. But it's not only what he said. Listen to what he did. He would do things because he was more concerned about helping people be in right relationship with God, not to be slaves to fear of men, that he would break down those systems that created this kind of slavery that got people thinking about, am I doing what they think I should be doing? Am I I finding approval by the religious group? So he would do things that would set them off. Because he was trying to create a culture where it was, the culture was about in, in obedience to, to God and their heart would be pure. And so at one point, in Matthew 5, 1 through 2, it says some Pharisees and, and teachers of the law came to Jesus and they came from Jerusalem. So they're kind of coming, they got some questions here. And they asked him, he says, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And so Jesus, I think, I wonder what he's, they're thinking about. And so they say, they don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, before you get all upset in our culture of cleanliness, you know, the medical staff, you're going, wait a second. See, in that day, it wasn't talking about purifying your hands. It was a symbolic thing that they would do before they would eat. They would kind of just pour some water over their hands. And the water wasn't so much to cleanse their hands as it was a symbol that they had a pure heart. And what Jesus was going is, that's nice, it's a nice symbol, it's a nice tradition, it's really cool if it reflects what's going on in the heart, but all you guys are coming in here and you're pouring water in your hands and you think because you poured some water in your hands that somehow your heart's pure. It's this idea that because you come to church, you hang around at church, you give some money to church, you do a bunch of things that you, your heart's pure. It doesn't work like that, Jesus says. And so Jesus has no problem with them upsetting that. In fact, then he goes on and he does another thing. It says, when the Sabbath... On one of the Sabbaths, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples were walking along. They began to pick some heads of grain. Now, that's not a cool thing to do. You don't, you don't work. If someone gives you some food, that's one thing. But on the Sabbath, you don't work. You don't break the grain. That was considered, in their day, work. And it says here, the Pharisees, they come to you and say, they say well, look, why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? See, Jesus not only spoke true things, he would actually do things that would disrupt the peace that was being kept, that was maintaining a system that was not healthy, that wasn't creating health before God in their own hearts. And if you think about it, in some ways, if you were a disciple, I could see in my own heart and my own mind wanting to keep peace, going, Jesus, if we just, we just washed our hands like that, and, and if we just didn't pick the grain, we would have a lot less problems here, Right? Jesus goes, no, because you're not dealing with root issues. In fact, he goes on and he makes some really incredible statements. He says, there's a difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. He says, do not think, in Matthew 10, 34, 
I mean, this, is, this, is, this would unnerve a peacekeeper. This should unnerve you. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. There are times, one author puts it this way, commentator, sometimes before peace can come, the sword has to fall. The unmasking of sin is necessary. Our pride has to be confronted. Our deception uncovered. Our denial unmasked. And doing that takes courage and faith in God to both do it and receive it. Peacemakers can sometimes and often could be disruptive. In Luke chapter 12, verse 51 and 52, Jesus said, Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? Well, of course that's what you came to bring. I thought we were bringing peace. No, no, I'm not bringing peace to keep it, to maintain a system, whether it's in a family or in a relationship, in a marriage. I'm not coming to bring peace, whether it's a church situation where people are kind of just dancing together, but they're not pure. They're not really, they're just not, they're not allowing the healthiness of God to, to, to be involved in this. I didn't come to do that. He says, in, in this case, he says, do you think I came to bring peace? No, I tell you division. You go, wait a second, why would, what, division? And he's basically saying, I didn't come to bring artificial peace. And he goes on to illustrate what it looks like. He continues in verse 52. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. What? You're a homewrecker? I mean, it's a hard word, isn't it? You have to be thinking, come on, Jesus, you're here to divide families? How can this be of God? But here's what he's saying. He's making a very important point here. He said, I didn't come here to kind of keep the whole religious system going the way it was so that they could just get bigger and stronger and then maybe somehow overcome the world through their force. I came here so that people would have right relationships with God and right relationships with one another, which means we have to bust up the system that is unhealthy. Now, what's interesting when you think about that, in one, one place, one example that I can give is like in a home of an alcoholic home. I mean, this is true for all, all families. Every one of us are dysfunctional to some degree. Every church, every group, there's some dysfunction. And what we all strive to be is as healthy as we can both before God and one another and employ those kind of things that help us live that way. So we speak truthfully to one another, Not trying to kind of maintain and keep peace, but truthfully to one another so we can be at true reconciled relationship. That doesn't mean that we don't have differences. We can disagree. We we begin to value relationship more than being right. There's a whole lot of things that go into this. But let's just take an alcoholic home. What happens so often is, let's say, say I'll use the father as an example who is an alcoholic. And as he's drinking, what happens in that family is they all learn to dance in deception together. So the dad's drinking, they all know that dad gets drunk and he gets angry and they all, and, and, and often a mother becomes the peacekeeper, not the peacemaker, but the peacekeeper and she teaches her children all how to keep peace. Now this can be with a, with a husband's anger or a wife's anger, whatever it is, it's not healthy. And the system learns how to dance together till one person goes, you know, this isn't working for me. All the rest of you are dancing, but I get slugged so hard, it hurts so hard. And they kind of step out and they go, oh, that's the rebellious black sheep. Sometimes it's just a truth teller. (laughs) I can't do this anymore. And a lot of times when they do it, they do it and they go off in a way that looks really bad so that you can just put all the shame on them and the family can keep doing their own thing. But what he's saying here, Jesus is saying, one person sometimes can stand up and speak the truth and the rest go, wait, wait, wait. And then one person who's there goes, man, I think they're right. Two against three, three against two. See, sometimes we want peace 
at the expense of the reality of God in our lives. And he says, don't let it be that way. As a church, in your family, let other people in your life to speak the truth where there isn't really peace, where there isn't healthiness. And there's just some signs. Some of you just, you want to say, okay, am I a peacekeeper? Because one of the things I want you to look through is, where are my tendencies? First of all, do I even know peace in my heart? And secondly, am I all about wanting to try and make everything calm? There's some personalities that are more than others want calm. Sometimes there's some people who actually like energy, so they'll even create chaos to get it. You know what I mean? You live with some. Anyway, um, and then there's peacekeepers. And some of the tendencies of peacekeepers are, are, are things like this. You walk on eggshells in order not to upset anyone who expresses disapproval or irritation. Think about this for a second. You find yourself there? You will not share your real feelings because you fear it will cause an argument and disrupt the relationship. In reality, that's an immaturity because what you should be able to do is be in a relationship of maturity. This is where maturity comes, where there can still be peace and you can both share what's going on and disagree. You tend to run and hide from any conflict and will even take blame and apologize for the sake of peace. You ever done that? Where you kind of go, you know, you just know that this isn't right, but you go ahead, okay, I'm really sorry. I, you know, and you take, you take the blame. You cover up by denying and lying about what's really going on in order to keep a peace that really doesn't even exist. You feel you have to be involved in everyone else's problem. The reason you do is because you want to control it and you want to fix it. That's a peacekeeper. You always feel taken advantage of. You feel not appreciated. You consider yourself the anchor, and you usually have to say, with pity, I'm the anchor in the storm of all this, right? I'm the only one who holds and keeps peace. And then peacekeepers will deny and avoid real and important and necessary issues in order to keep peace at any cost. But peacemakers come in sometimes and they're disruptive and they can be painful and they will press an issue rather than let it get covered over. So that the prophet Jeremiah at one point, Jeremiah 8.11, a great verse, says, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Dressing the wounds means to cover them up. It means we never deal with the root problem. I went to a mechanic who very kind of sheepishly shared with me, you know, about the problem with my car, and I knew that it was probably going to be more expensive than he wanted, but he finally got honest with me and just said, you know, your timing belt is way overdue. You're lucky it hasn't broken. Now, it would have been a bummer if he didn't want to offend me to keep peace, to tell me nothing about my timing belt, because then it would have cost a lot more later, Right? Think of medical doctors. How many medical doctors actually like coming to the patient and knowing they're going to disrupt their life by saying, you know, they, you say to them, Doc, you know, how am I doing? They go, yeah, you're great. And they walk away knowing you've got a mass of something on your lung. See, the problem with peacekeeping is that what you do is you cover the wound. We all know that if you cover a wound that has junk in it, it's just going to get worse. It's going to eventually die. And Jesus makes this important point that peacemakers know peace in their heart and they grow in faith. They are courageous in faith no matter what's going on here and they are able to step in and make peace sometimes by boldly and courageously saying what is true. And I don't have time for the last one, but here's where some of you live as well. You're called peace enforcers. You use power to keep peace. 
You use your power to maintain the system the way you want it is, the way you want it. In fact, what's really interesting when I think of that, I, I was reading some stuff on it, and, and one person makes this point. Um, he, he says, you know what a peace enforcer was called in the, in the Wild West? A Colt 45. The beatitude was blessed was the man with the quickest draw, for he won force peace. Some 200 years later in the U.S., we have a nuclear missile called what? Peacemaker. Because it instills fear. And some of you keep peace because you do instill fear. And there may be a time when you're a parent. Sometimes the government has to do this. There will be a time when Jesus will come again for all who continue to remain in rebellion. You need to do that. But I want to share with you, that's not what Jesus is talking about. A peacemaker was not Jesus coming at that time. It was Jesus coming, sacrificing himself, loving and seeking to understand and to use power together to create something good. I don't know where you fall on that. I'm going to ask the team if they'd come because we're going to worship here to close the service. But as we sing this last song, I'm going to ask you to just continue to pray about this area and any area that might have been brought up in your life and then we'll close with prayer.